I'm Dr. Derek Cohen, and this is the Foundation Podcast. Wow, what a week it has been under the Pink Dome. Later on this podcast, we'll be joined by Dr. Kevin Roberts to discuss contemporary issues. But first, we have to acknowledge the frenzy action of the week before. Last week, Speaker Dade Phelan announced Healthy Families, Healthy Texas, Texas's House Plan on Healthcare. The package identified 10 priority topics, including expanding telehealth, reducing drug prices for the uninsured, required price disclosure, and expanding healthcare offerings, among several others. While some of these bills are further along than others in the package, we'll likely see a more concerted effort to move the entirety of this list in tandem. Check out our podcast from two weeks ago with David Ballant, where we cover all these topics and more in the field of healthcare. During a marathon hearing of criminal jurisprudence, members heard HB 20 by Murr, a comprehensive overhaul of the state's bail system. Additionally, the committee heard HJR 4 by Casal, a proposed constitutional amendment that would allow violent and dangerous criminals to be held without bail in certain circumstances. Currently, only those charged with capital murder or with substantial felonious criminal histories can be denied bail. HB 20 was closed around 4 a.m. Wednesday morning. The Elections Committee voted out HB 6, Chairman Kane's Comprehensive Election Integrity Bill, on Thursday morning. The Senate's answer to the election matter, SB 7 by Hughes, was received by the House on Tuesday. And finally, the budget. After a fairly tidy committee and floor process, SB 1, the General Appropriations Bill, has passed the Senate. As the only required piece of legislation to pass this session, the budget has so far remained under our conservative Texas budget threshold of $246.8 billion, coming in at $244.7 billion, excluding $6 billion for property tax relief. While the process is far from complete and additional reductions are welcome, action on the budget thus far has shown that fiscal restraint is possible when we're prioritizing needs over wants. Joining me today on the podcast is Dr. Kevin Roberts, CEO of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Derek. It's good to see you here at TPPF and not at the Capitol. <laughs> your lips to God's ears. We're coming up on your fifth year here at TPPF. Now, a lot of our listeners know you or have met you in passing, but for the rest, tell us what brought you into your current role. Well, I've loved politics since I was nine or 10. And people who know me, colleagues like you and others, friends of TPPF, know that I'm an, an educator by training, but I say that I have been an educator to pay the bills so that I could follow my passion of politics and policy. And the short version of a long story is that when I was president of a small college in the Rocky Mountain West and the Obama administration wanted to mess around with us on a couple of things that were central to our beliefs, we won both. And it really wet my whistle to be more involved full time in policy and politics and being an adopted Texan educated at the University of Texas and a fan for many years of TPPF. When I had the opportunity to come here five years ago, I jumped at it. And it has been the third of three dream jobs that I've had in my life. And I'm looking forward to doing it for a very long time. Well, hopefully you don't leave us for your fourth dream job anytime soon. I don't think a guy could be that lucky. So you're probably <laughs> stuck with me. So, so being involved in a conservative movement as you have been, like, what sort of reflections do you have on, on this moment, on the trajectory of both uh, the country and the state, both politically and culturally? Yeah, I see both, you know, the, the politics and culture. And I'm, I'm what you would call a Reagan conservative. And one of the many, many things, countless things, really, I admired about Reagan when he was alive and admire now 
about him that were assessing his legacy in American history was that he never wanted to put an adjective in front of conservative. You know, we've got this false dichotomy, as I see it, between so-called social conservatives and fiscal conservatives. And conservatism, for me, is so unifying because it's it's far upstream from polit- uh, political things, you know, campaigns and elections. Those are important. And so people listening to this who are really engaged and knocking on doors and calling for their candidates continue to do that. I'm not discouraging there. But the point is, we're at the same point or very similar point in 2021 that we were in the late 1970s, which is that we've got a feckless Democrat president who believes that America's in decline. And I say that with all due respect to the person and office uh, Joe Biden and, and the fact that he's president. But the point is, he's as awful as Jimmy Carter. And what happened as a result? The conservative movement, which had been very fractured, we were using adjectives in front of conservative, the word conservative, which is a project of the left to divide us, were unified by Ronald Reagan. I don't know who the next Reagan is, but I do know that he or she will emerge in 2024. And it's going to be the golden years, not just for conservatism, but for America. And to sort of come full circle back to Texas Public Policy Foundation, Derek, I think that this organization and organizations like it are playing an outsized role in recohering the conservative movement in kind of Reagan style because of the big picture attitude we take. You know, in our own organization, I'm sure in our own listenership to this podcast, we have folks who might call themselves libertarians, folks who might call themselves conservative, folks who might reject labels altogether. But the point is, the beliefs that hold us together are rooted in optimism and they're rooted in a love for people. And the more that we in our daily work and candidates who are running for office under our flag can smile and be optimistic about the future, not in a Pollyannish way, but to say we can address today's challenges with really bright ideas for reform, I am ecstatic about the future. So as you mentioned, as a think tank, our work lay with squarely within the policy realm. And despite the disruption caused by the pandemic and additional issues, you know, basically spinning off from that, uh, things seem to be shaping up to be a productive, dare I say, conservative session. What are some of the bright spots that you're seeing so far? Yeah, you know, I, I try not to be engaged in, in hyperbole, whether that would be positive or negative. And so it really is heartfelt when I say here, past the halfway point of session, that this is already a much better session than the last couple and probably even the few before that, especially considering some of the, the the limitations of reforms that were done. And so while we can't start applauding until sine die, there are still some hard votes that our friends in the House and Senate have to take, and God bless them for doing it. They deserve a lot of credit already for getting some high priorities across some important steps. We don't have anything across the finish line. We haven't had a bill signed yet by the governor. But I think we, are, we Texans, are in really good shape for a good session. I know you may want to probe for some detail there, but just kind of very high level for people who are tuning in today, trying to get our inside baseball view of where session stands. It's, it's really good right now, and it has the potential to be exceptional. It has the potential to be less than very good as well. It's, it, that's just where we are right now. And, and probe for detail, I, I shall. So just this morning, uh, we've seen some movement on the election issue, uh, HB6 being voted out of uh, the House Elections Committee. SB7 had just arrived in the House on Tuesday morning. So that being said, I think that had we looked at this issue 
in years past, we would see a couple fits and starts, maybe a little uh, reform around the margins. But it seems like there is animation, there is desire, there is actually a thorough analysis of need in that space right now. Would you concur? Absolutely. And you know, hats off to Speaker Phelan and Lieutenant Governor Patrick for playing ball on this issue. I mean, this is a hard issue right now for Republicans. I say that as a nonpartisan think tank leader, and it's a hard issue for Republicans because folks on the left, not all of them, thank goodness, but a lot of folks on the left have turned this into the worst kind of race baiting and just baseless accusations that I have seen in my career. And that's saying something because I've been called all manner of names for supporting parental freedom in education. But the point is they've been able to steer past that. And of course, the media is aligned against us and these big woke corporations are aligned against us. And so while the bills that have come out of committee and, and in the case of SB7 come to the House, having been voted out of the Senate, are not A+. plus. They are really good bills that are not just nibbling on the margin. Uh, there, there is one huge remaining issue for the House and Senate to tackle when it comes to election reform. And for us to say, this is an exceptional win for the people of Texas, and that is voter identification for mail-in ballots. If Coca-Cola requires voter identification to attend their shareholder meeting, I would expect that they would support that idea. And what about one of the things that we have talked previously on this uh, podcast was the budget. And obviously, our colleague Vanskin has been working tirelessly on that. He, he seems to care something about that. A little bit. And you know what? I would say that he seems optimistic about it. Now, granted, it could be the worst budget in history, and I would argue he'd probably still seem optimistic about it. But uh, that being said, it looks like we are actually coming in, at least at this current moment. This is after the budget has been voted out on Tuesday of the Senate and has been uh, referred to and is now set on the House Appropriations Committee's agenda for the 12th. Um, we basically see it under what we consider a conservative Texas budget, population growth plus inflation. And we're under it by, you know, a couple billion dollars, which, you know, between friends is a decent amount of money. How, how does that make you feel? Awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's an A plus right there. And for years, we've been advocating for this idea in large part because of Vance's excellent work, not just as an economist, but just the friend he is to anyone in the legislature, members of both parties who are willing to have a conversation with Vance. He always does that with a smile on his face. He really personifies how we try to be here at the foundation. And, and I think there's very little chance that there will be any budget that comes out of the session that is not a slam dunk conservative Texas budget. And the great thing is that Texas needs to continue doing that to sustain the Texas model. And there are other state legislatures signing on to this idea. So Texas really has become, kind of go back to the Reagan idea or the, the Reagan reference, the, the city upon a hill uh, in terms of policy. And there are other really good uh, examples of progress and other areas of policy that we can talk about that I expect some good movement on in the next few weeks. And one last softball before I switch over to the hard. Oh balls. man, I don't do hard balls. Come on. <laughs> Healthcare. Oh gosh. Uh, huge, huge deal. Oh, were you going to ask me a real question there? No, still a softball. So you yeah, can okay. answer the question you wanted to ask. Yeah. You, you were, you were peering as uh, president Bush said to Vladimir Putin, you know, into my soul. I didn't, I didn't know how serious a question it was. Obviously very important issue. All kidding aside, healthcare progress looks really good this session. And I would point our listeners to the announcement last week in the House uh, by, by Speaker Phelan and allies, especially conservatives, some left of center folks, 
that package, that idea has a lot of TPPF research in it. And it is the long, elusive response by conservatives to the left of what the conservative solution is to the healthcare problem we all face. And let me say, as a lifelong conservative, I'm embarrassed that so many conservatives, especially in DC, have failed to answer that question in a substantive way. I'm proud of the Texas legislature and Speaker Phelan in particular should be very proud of where we are. Still got to vote on those bills. They still got to become law. But let me tell you, that's the kind of thing that makes this session go from very good to exceptional. Agreed completely. So again, switching over to the hard balls, you know, not everything uh, uh, can be milk and honey. So where are we lagging? What is a baton that has been dropped or is looking wobbly that the legislature still has an opportunity to pick up? A few things. And, and I'd say this with, with the caveat that I know we probably can't get every single thing done in one session. And so to our friends in the legislature, members, staff members know that this comes with gratitude for the hard votes. But look, this is Texas. So we should always be reaching for the stars. The first is actually maybe a list of five or six. The first three are voter ID, voter ID, voter ID. Both the House and Senate bills, as good as they are, need voter ID for mail-in ballots. Otherwise, the 2022 cycle will be awful for people right of center. And it will not be, those elections will not be transparent. They will not be fair because the left will drive huge 18-wheelers through that vulnerability of saying that mail-in ballot requires less security than voting in person. Item four after voter ID, voter ID, voter ID for mail-in ballots. Item four would be banning the terrible practice of using our tax dollars to lobby on issues against us. That's a, a hard vote in the Senate and the House because people who are well-paid Austin lobbyists are well-paid for a reason. They block excellent ideas and they support terrible ideas. All you have to do if you're listening and trying to figure out if this is a good issue or not is are you aligned with what high-paid Austin lobbyists do? And if the answer is no, which I'm sure it is, then know that we've got to get that legislation passed. Heavy lift, but I'm cautiously optimistic that can be done. It will take some political courage and hats off to the leadership of the state thus far in the session that we've seen that. Item five, we've got to fix the electricity debacle. We have a, a great idea coming up. Uh, won't go too far into the weeds, Derek, but you told me to keep this high level. But I, I'm cautiously optimistic that, especially based on what the Senate has done and what Chairman Patty deserves some credit for in the House, that we're going to, to, to get that fixed for the most part. And then the last thing is education. I'm a lifelong educator. Um, we're not going to get parental choice in education. And we should be embarrassed as Texans that we don't have universal parental choice in education, especially after the last year. What I think we are going to be able to do, however, is lay the groundwork for achieving that in the future. So even in these constructive criticisms I'm mentioning, I do think that there's a way forward. I'm just not sure if the calendar is on our side to get them done. Absolutely. And now let's take a let's take a moment to leave our cosmopolitan confines of Texas and go to the hinterlands. I've never been called cosmopolitan, but I guess you're just saying <laughs> I'm sitting in the cosmopolitan <laughs> confines. It, exactly. It'd be a tough sell to say otherwise, two blocks south of the Capitol. That's right. Uh, but as many listeners are aware, since you came here in 2016, uh, the Texas Public Policy Foundation has built out a substantial presence in D.C. What was the impetus for doing that? And how do you see the role of our D.C. team evolving 
um, basically across two radically different administrations as their role progresses? Well, the impetus for our foundation opening an office in D.C. and staffing it out with some excellent folks, including a former member of Congress, was that D.C. needs more understanding of how states do things. You know, as a historian, I can tell you that the three or four times in our 200-something year history as a country that D.C. has done something right, that it's, it's done so because it took a great idea from one or more states. And we're not doing enough of that right now. Both political parties are complicit in that failure. And what happens is we let guys and gals to D.C. They, they, I'm just going to assume they're well-intentioned, but, you know, the water, the air, something in D.C. causes them to lose their political mettle. And we can't even have an honest conversation about policy in D.C. between liberals and conservatives. I mean, I, I've mentioned to you before, I, I pine for the day that we have the, the second coming of Daniel Patrick Moynihan left of center guy as a conservative, I would love to have someone like Moynihan in the Senate because you can have an intellectually honest conversation about policies that matter. And when you decide that you disagree, it's okay. You don't hate one another. You move on to the next issue that maybe you'll agree 60% on. That, by the way, is what I think the Texas legislature does an excellent job of most of the time. But the point is, the only way to fix that is for states to play a bigger role in what D.C. does. And this is not just the Texas moment, it's the state moment. And so that's why we call our organization States Trust. We're there, frankly, to advocate on behalf of all states, Texas, of course, number one, that D.C., members of both parties, need to listen to what states are doing. What does that require, Derek? It requires those states, especially those in session right now, to do the right thing. So our effort in D.C. will go very well if the Texas legislature has an exceptional session. And now you opined on this a little bit prior to, but with that perspective looking forward, what do you see the trajectory being from from here on out? And I just don't mean through the end of session or through the next session, but the next 10, 20, 50 years. Well, you know, you should never ask a historian to predict the future. But if history... I was told that if you knew the past, that you already knew it. Yeah, I know. I see. I, there was a softball for you. <laughs> if history doesn't repeat itself, it at least rhymes. And I think what's going to happen is that we're, I believe we're going to have our Reagan. I believe we're going to have our next Reagan revolution. And that is going to look like fiscal restraint on the federal side, because there has to be. I mean, we, we can't continue to do what we're doing. And in addition to that fiscal restraint, I'm really pleased that we're, we're grappling as conservatives and even centrist folks, maybe a few thoughtful guys and gals left of center with a really important idea. And that is COVID and the related shutdowns have proven that one thing we've not attended to as human persons, all members of a civil society, is our communities. And I know there is practically universal agreement that our political rhetoric is awful. It's awful by many Republicans, by many Democrats. And if we were to elevate that, it starts with us. You know, to paraphrase the Tocqueville, if you have a problem with your politicians, Americans, look in the mirror. And so to wrap that into the optimism that I have, I believe we're awakening to that. And I believe we're not only going to see great political and policy successes for those of us who are conservatives, but we're going to see people, leaders who are truly transcendent, who have the ability to articulate a bold, optimistic vision for America that is, in the proper sense of the word, inclusive. Doesn't mean we're always going to agree doesn't mean that they're going to win elections with 80% of the vote. But what it does mean is that I think we're going to go back to those eras 
of American history where we are a lot more unified. You know, the reality is we've never been completely unified. But in many episodes in our history, when we've been at our best and truly been that that beacon that Reagan talked about, it's when we at least know we can have a difference of opinion without thinking the world's going to end. Kevin, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for all the great work you do. Thanks for having me.